Hello everyone, and welcome to this LSE online event hosted by the European Institute and the 89 Initiative. Today's event is part of the LSE's European Institute series, Beyond Eurocentrism. My name is Jennifer Jackson Priest. I'm Associate Professor of Nationalism with a joint appointment in both LSE's European Institute and the Department of International Relations. I'm delighted to be chairing this event today and I'm very pleased to be able to welcome our panel. We are joined here by Dr. Manmit Bambra, who is a research officer in the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at the LSE, and also the Migration Research Director of the 89 Belgium. We're also joined by Hiba Latriche, who is the General Secretary of the Forum of European Muslim Youth and Student Organizations, and by Majid Majid, who is a former Green Party MEP representing Yorkshire and the Humber at the European Parliament and was previously the youngest ever Lord Mayor of Sheffield. And then finally, by Dr. Amelia Roy, who is founder and executive director of the Centre for Intersectional Justice. For those Twitter users out there, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Eurocentrism, all one word. The online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there is going to be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose as many as possible to our speakers please do let me know your name and your affiliation when you're asking the question. Now that we've gone over all of those formalities, let me say I am delighted to be able to hand over to Dr. Roig, who will begin our discussion about whose lives matter in Europe. Amelia, over to you. Well, thank you so much for the um, invitation. I'm very happy to participate in this uh, series of lectures. Um, and I find the title as well, um, yeah, very telling about the intention behind it. So I, uh, I am very honored to be here. To the question, whose lives matter in Europe? I would answer um, that not all lives matter. Uh, because it's impossible to give a very specific uh, delineation of whose lives matter and not, but I'd like to um, speak about the systems of oppression that decide uh, or that at least have influenced um, the value that we put on lives uh, in the world. And so if we want to speak about Europe, I, I also very welcome this because I was in a panel right before where we were talking about um, global inequalities. And when we speak about global inequalities and global injustice, what tends to happen is that the inequalities within, if we want to call it the global north, let's call it this way, but I mean, I think there's no perfect word for um, Europe, the US and uh, yeah, the global north generally, then we tend to um, overlook inequalities within our countries. And that's a very big problem because then it just reduces inequalities and discrimination to an economic level. And we tend to then... Um, also minimize the effect that colonization continues to have um, in our societies. I come from France and uh, France is still a colonial um, country. It means that uh, part of my family comes from a colony. So uh, Martinique is still a colony in France, for example. And, um, and it, it would be impossible to really understand the scope of social inequalities and of discrimination without looking at this colonial past and present. So I think 
Confronting Europe's colonial past and present is one of the most pressing issues if we really want to understand whose lives matter in Europe and also if we want to make sure that everybody um, has access to 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 resources and also have access to political, economic, cultural power um, in a way that is uh, fair and equitable and that doesn't define um, um, power and also hegemony on the way we talk about inequalities, the way we talk about social uh, issues uh, in our countries. So that being said, I would say that um, the protests after the murder of George Floyd have ignited a very important debate um, in Europe in unprecedented ways. So it's not the first black man that um, dies at the hand of police in the US, but the traction that it got in our European countries was unprecedented simply because it started with, um, the conversation started as a political issue. So, oh, that's a political issue. That's something that happens in the US that doesn't really apply to, um, to, to, to France, Germany, Belgium, the UK. Uh, and, and then slowly it shifted simply because a lot of voices of people of color and black people in Europe started to be heard. And I think that we entered a, a, a an era, maybe I, I want to hope where, um, inequalities and, and systemic violence is no longer accepted. So it means that there has been a collective awareness that um, was raised by what happened in the US and that continued to, uh, to be discussed as issues in, era, in, in, in societal areas where it wasn't the case before. For example, even in the bank sector, uh, people are increasingly speaking about social inequality, about po police violence, which would have been unthinkable. I mean, at least if you ask me in my field of work, it would have been un unthinkable um, a year ago even. So what defines what, to come back to your question, what defines what, um, uh, which lives matter in Europe currently has a lot to do with the notion of race. And basically, even though this category has been proven scientifically wrong, it means that there are no human, there are no different human races. But of course, this social construct continues to impact um, how people get access, how people are perceived, and how, um, yeah, and how, how empathy as well is uh, lived between human beings. It means that uh, over centuries, Black people and people of color have been depicted as less as human, and they have been also treated this way. And there has been a study um, conducted in Canada and also in Italy showing the empathy gap. And the, the, this, this study showed different skin colors, like the two skin colors, one black and one white, and then needles being put on both skins. And then uh, the participants of the study, so their um, levels of uh, discomfort and their levels of pain were calculated. And it showed that um, all the participants, or almost all, felt uh, much, much lower pain when the, when the needle was inflicted on black skin. And this is, I think, very central to the question whose lives matter. Simple because if we cannot feel empathy, then of course we cannot, um, uh, attribute value to human life. And uh, I think that the fact that so many, so few people are moved and, and really deeply disturbed by the fact that hundreds of thousands of people die in the Mediterranean every year, most of whom are coming from the African continent and are not white, um, is uh, very symptomatic of this empathy gap. So this is what we would need to confront in order to really understand that we can restore this empathy. And that I think it is something that humanity would gain from. So it means that 
people who do not feel empathy towards other human beings are um, losing, right? I mean, it's not something that is impacting them positively. As human beings, we want to feel empathy towards all living beings even. So I think this is something that um, uh, we would need to recognize first in order to uh, really understand the scope of the empathy gap and the, 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 the ways in which uh, it impacts um, black and brown people in our societies and why um, there is endemic violence and endemic racism in all institutions, not only the police, but also um, and only law enforcement and only the justice system, but also all areas of life in the media, in politics, uh, in AI. If we look at artificial intelligence, you know, we are replicating uh, these um, biases and the empathy gap as well. So I will stop here because I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, and uh, yes, so I'm stopping here for now. Thanks, Amelia. Um, now I'd like to bring Hiba into the conversation. Thank you, uh, Dr. Jennifer, for the kind introduction. Um, hi, everyone. My name is uh, Hiba Latresh. Um, I'd like to thank as well um, 89 Initiative um, and the ALEC European Institute for the invitation. Um, as Dr. Uh, Jennifer mentioned previously, I currently serve as the General Secretary of FEMISO, uh, which is the Forum of European Muslim Youth and Student Organization. And just like Emilia, I am from France. Uh, <laughs> nice to meet you all. Um, FEMISO represents 33 member organizations across 20 European countries. Um, this event, of course, uh, comes at a point in time uh, for our region where we find ourselves at the precipice of um, huge changes, both globally um, and on national levels, as a result of the effects of COVID-19. Um, the world has come to a halt. Time from introspections has taken place um, and the opportunity for us to see substantial change is here. And um, one of the areas of change and people want to see is substantial efforts being made to tackle social ills um, like that of racism. And the reason for that is because young people are both the victims and the change makers when it comes to racism. Numerous studies, but also anecdotal experiences I have come across in my role have shown me the negative impacts of racism and the different kinds of discrimination on youth. It affects their attainment, their mental health, their identity, and eventually their, their role um, in the society as a whole. But despite this, young people are also now more than ever the main actors in the fight against racism. The recent movements have proved this. Um, as they all led by young people all across the globe. And there is a growing awareness as well and mobilization on societal issues, which makes the new generation shake society and make efforts to reform the status quo. I'm proud to be part of an organization, FEMISO, um, where we make active effort every day through our work to empower young people and to help them develop skills in order to advocate for their rights, but also to hold the policymakers accountable in order to bring effective change at the institutional levels. Um, but when it comes to the question of whose life matters in Europe, well, here's what I think. In an ideal society, we not have to ask this question because everyone's rights, dignity, opportunities would be protected and giving the same level of importance. But as Emilia has said, sadly, that is not the case. And unfortunately, not only history, but also recent events have proved the opposite. However, the public opinion has shifted recently to support many of these initiatives, 
Unfortunately, those in position of leadership mostly remain committed to only performative statements instead of reforming the very structure, structures which carry out these oppressive me me measures. Um, and this was seen throughout reactions to the Black Lives Matter protest across the globe. Leaders became obsessed with taking the knee, but were not willing to look at the oppressive laws that people face in their own country, the countries they govern. An example I wanted to take is the sheer hypocrisy of the French media establishment, who were rally rallying calls following the murder of George Floyd, calling for justice and criticizing the US uh, government. But when it came to the murder of Adama Traoré, who called out, I can't breathe, just like George Floyd and Eric Garner, the response was to look into his personal past to try and justify the police's actions. When it comes to Black Lives Matter and racism, it seems that it seems as if many of our leaders believe that those problems are only those of the United States. And we struggle to look within our own borders and eradicate the issue in our own countries. Despite activists and academics shouting and working to have systemic racism recognized for decades. Um, I've witnessed the struggle in my own activism, just recognizing one form of, act of racism, namely Islamophobia, was made an impossible task. For instance, in France, oppressive laws forced me to remove my headscarf every single day in front of the school perimeter for 10 years. And this law is still happening now. And this Islamophobic laws in practice made me live through different humiliating experiences, whether it's being pulled out of a crowd by the teacher's body, being told off for not removing it early enough, trying to force me onto disciplinary measures, being singled out during student trip. And of course, this immensely affected my mental health as well as my student experience. And it also shaped how I viewed the laws that were supposed to protect me. But ra systemic racism and oppressive laws were so deeply rooted that they also made me adjust my own path through the prism of what I could do, what I was allowed to do in France with my hijab, my headscarf. And since the 2004 law bans hijab from public servant positions such as for instance judges, hospital, doctors, teachers and so on. I later only recently realized that racism was so established that it became self-censorship. And this is not only an individual loss where my ambitions, employment prospects are restricted, but it's also an immense loss for society where all its components are not able to reach their full potential. And that's why I was so proud of my sister in uh, Belgium for their campaign, Touche pas mes études, in English, Don't Touch My Studies, where thousands of them safely went out on the streets, organized a demonstration, which was in opposition to the ridiculous decision by the Belgian courts to allow higher education institutions to ban their students from wearing religious symbols, which, again, which once again affects Muslim women like me. Them and countless others inspire me that we are all on a journey to make a Europe a better place for all, regardless of their backgrounds, but that we still have much work to do. And that's why discussions like today 
are so important and I'm thankful for the opportunity. Thank you. I pass it back to you, Dr. Jennifer. Thanks, Hiba. Um, now I'd like to invite Majid to share his thoughts on the question. Hello. Majid, are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Thank you very much. And honestly, it's a real um it's a real honor to be sharing the panel with so many wonderful, amazing people. And thanks to everyone who put on this um, event together. I guess like there had there's been so many several racial injustices carried out all across Europe. But why, in my opinion, why did it take the death of George Floyd, who was a black American, for the European Union to feel the need to hold a debate on the issue? And like Hiba mentioned, where was Adam and Adama Traore's justice who died in police custody? Where was the outrage from the European Union? Why didn't they have meetings to discuss racism then? I think that the recent Black Lives Matter protests all across Europe have really exposed the continent's dismal record of race-based violence, discrimination and harassments. Black communities all across Europe are really subjected to areas which have poor access to education, housing, healthcare, clean air quality, cultural venues, libraries and public services, and especially young Black and minority ethnic people in Europe are less likely to have access to opportunities and secure employment. 20 years ago, the European Union was at, should we say, the forefront of the fight against racial discrimination when it adopted landmark laws to prohibit discrimination based on race and ethnic origin, especially in a time of, I guess, at the moment, we've got rising and racist violence, persistent discrimination and racial inequalities. The European Commission and Europe as a whole, in my opinion, must have a stronger, more public commitment to address police violence and structural racism in Europe as a whole. And if I was ambitious, here are like four ways I believe we can tackle all, we can all tackle racism in Europe. So first of all, I said racism is a systemic issue and needs a systematic approach to defeat it. And justice more than anything else really needs to be at the heart of that. Second point I'd make is everybody needs to educate themselves, regardless of who you are. If you're not black or minority ethnic, one of the most important things you can do right now is to learn something about the current situation, the plight of so many discriminated people across Europe. Read upon why people have been protesting. More importantly, how you can be part of that change. Because as we know, racism is real and being non-racist is not enough. We all have to be anti-racist, which... I guess means actively fighting against racism rather than being passively sympathetic. And basically, the third point, like maybe a bit far fetched, but I will definitely fight for it, is make the realities of European imperialism, colonialism, and systemic racism a compulsory part of the school curriculum. There is a lot that is omitted from Europe's history. And I guess by excluding the evils of Europe's imperialism, along with how many, like, how many of um, the African diaspora, come, how much they contributed to Europe. And I guess European children, regardless of where they are, are robbed of understanding how colonialism ideology was implemented to begin with. And most importantly, how this contributes to the unfair systems of power at the foundation of our modern society that we all live and experience in. The fourth point I'd make is address intersections of inequalities. So to truly tackle um, structural racism, Europe and the European Union has to recognise the intersectional dimensions of racism. 
This means recognizing that, it, that in some situations, a person can be discriminated against on a combination of grounds that interact and are, I guess, impossible to untangle and disassociate, thus creating a specific experience of discrimination. For example, climate. The fight, I guess, for climate justice is the fight of all our lives, regardless of what your background is. However, the effects of the climate crisis are unequal and unfair. So this crisis was created by the privileged few, but it's hitting ethnic minorities and marginalised communities the hardest. So we really can't talk about the climate crisis without recognising that it is also an inequality and race issue. And I guess the, the EU and Europe cannot continue to avoid uncomfortable conversations on race and discrimination. It really is simple. The European Union's management machine as a whole no longer really, I don't think if it ever did, really represent the reality of the continent's increasingly vibrant, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-religious and multi-racial societies. To truly connect with all of European citizens and to really inspire and motivate them, the European Union, in my opinion, must really look like the societies they represent. And as much as I really welcome the recent EU upgrade to its race equality law, and yes, they are 100% important, but let's be real about it. Like you can't legislate love, you can't legislate compassion, and you definitely can't legislate empathy. And so one powerful vehicle that, in my opinion, young people do really, really well, and I've seen them using it to tackle racism through winning hearts and minds and doing a really good job of that is through the arts. You see, like arts, like the arts, arts and culture as a whole really helps us identify with one another and really expands our notion of we and I guess on a local level as well as a global level. And from my opinion, they're re- they're, I guess there's a reason, shall I say, why far-right groups, racist groups and governments, even here in, in, in the UK, are always against the arts, or always attacking the arts. And it's because art really engenders empathy and it's really, really hard to be an empathetic person and be racist at the same time. So I guess to um, answer your question, whose lives matter in Europe? Not everyone's is basically what I'd say. But if I can just leave you with a wonderful quote um, from James Baldwin that kind of sums it up nicely. And it's from his powerful 1972 extended essay, No Name in the Street. It goes, well, if one really wishes to know how justice is administered in a country... One does not question the policemen, the lawyers, the judges, or the protected members of the middle class. One goes to the unprotected, those precisely who need the law's protection most, and listens to their testimony. Ask any Mexican, any Puerto Rican, any black man, any poor person. Ask the wretched how they fare in the halls of justice. And then you will know, not whether or not the country is just, but whether or not it has any love for justice or any concept of it. It is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Thank you. And over to you, Jennifer. Thanks very much, Mashid. Now I will invite Manmit Bambra to give her thoughts on the matter. Manmit. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, I'll just start by thanking uh, the European Institute and the 89 Initiative uh, for this opportunity to be on this wonderful panel and talk about um, and, uh, you know, these issues, but also exchange ideas with people I haven't come across before. This is a really interesting question, and I spent quite some time trying to formulate my answer, I must admit. 
Um, you know, the obvious answer is, you know, everybody's lives matter, all lives matter. But does it always feel, feel that way? No, it doesn't. Does it always seem that way? No, it doesn't. And there are things that are happening over and over again to certain groups that makes us really question the extent to which all lives are protected in the, in the way that we would hope they would be. Um, and, you know, these, this issue is, is of divides and it's of fragmentation and it's not exclusive to Europe. Um, you know, beyond Europe, we see increasing uh, fragmentation in societies along racial, religious and ethnic lines. You know, the murder of George Floyd was a stark reminder of the continual racial injustices faced by African-Americans. But beyond the US and uh, the more Western gaze, we see, if you look at India, for example, the growing anti-Muslim violence. You know, the Uyghurs in China. This is this is something that is going on over and over again. And, you know, I, I do try and um, think about the local, but also the global as well. This is a this is there's a shift. You know, there seems to be, you know, increasing divides between people and it's more and more salient. And we're, we're seeing these issues coming to the forefront all the time now. And even in the UK, we're still trying to forge a sense of self after the fractious divides caused by Brexit, you know, the highly, you know, a racialized campaign to leave that left the country sort of searching for, you know, a way forward. And now with the, with the pandemic, with COVID-19, we see again the structural challenges faced by minority groups where members of uh, black and minority ethnic groups are disproportionately um, affected by this virus. We really need to ask ourselves why. Um, you know, and going back to the European question, and, you know, focusing on some research that even Jennifer and I have done together in the, in the European Institute is, you know, how do we manage, you know, diversity in Europe? You know, Europe is increasingly diverse and multicultural, but there is still the, those white connotations of Europeanness. You know, even myself, when I think of a, a European person, a white person springs to mind. And then how do we then manage that with the increasing challenges of migration? And a new generation growing up in that environment are questions that perhaps we can discuss later on. Now, how do we move forward when the fault lines between communities are still, and perhaps even more so, based on race and religion? What do we do? Um, you know, it does seem that in Europe, some lives matter more than others, even as much as we would not like that to be the case. There are groups of people whose lives are not always given the rights and protections that we would hope for. I always find it quite uh, difficult to keep my own life experiences away from these more sort of academic discussions. And I've been encouraged to draw on that a little bit today. So, and I, and I will do that because I think it's important as a, as a researcher. You know, I, I was brought up in, growing up in Southeast London, very close to where Stephen Lawrence was murdered. I was acutely aware of my own difference growing up. Who am I? Where do I fit in? What does it mean to be British? And then now, you know, the, the European question, which wasn't so much of a question when I was growing up, but it's something that I think about all the time. Um, you know, luckily, I've been, um, you know, through years of, you know, hopefully being around the right people, being given a voice to be on, on such a panel and talk about um, these issues. But I think dialogue and engagement is crucial here. You see so many young people, and we're talking a lot about youth today, who want to get their voices heard. And that might seem cliche, but I feel that something we could perhaps talk about is how to facilitate that and have those discussions. And, you know, to draw on some of the research that um, I've been part of at the LSE, I, I've done lots of work on youth, first in the European Institute, the Middle East Centre, now in the Religion and Global Society Union. And we, we look at young people, we look at um, young people, not just in the UK, but across Europe. And we find something quite hopeful, actually, drawing on the earlier comments from the other panellists, 
we do find that younger people do have a, a more open sense of identity. There is what we have called a generational shift in the sense that we find that younger people, they've had more exposure to other groups. My own work in the UK has shown that younger people have kind of grown up in a multicultural environment and they take this forward. They take this forward in how they see other people. So perhaps this is something that we can be quite hopeful about. Younger people are perhaps the voice of the future and we're seeing in research that they are more inclusive in their outlook and their ideas around identity and who belongs and who doesn't belong. So I wonder if how we wonder something we could think about is how we could build that momentum. And I'm certainly hopeful that if we were to, to utilize our own networks and our own platforms for those young people, perhaps see a positive change in the future. And I'll stop there, Jennifer. All right, thank you so much. Well, uh, this is so much of importance here to think about and dialogue about. And really, as I've listened to all of you, I've been struck by the power of what you've all been saying. And my first question back to all of you, in fact, is to invite you to exchange with one another your own responses to what you've been hearing. What stood out most powerfully in my mind was, you know, the first comment and the first kind of couple of seconds that Amelia said right out there, not all lives matter. You know, wow, isn't that a sobering comment to make and something that invites us really to take note? Clearly, racism is real. Um, it's here. It's in our country. It's not just in other people's country. And I was struck as well by the reminder of that wonderful quote from Baldwin. It's one of my favorites as well. That if we're going to understand what's going on, we really need to listen to the testimony of the unprotected. The pandemic is here. And in my own thinking about this, as I've tried to reflect on it, and we've had so many occasions like the George Floyd horrible moment and they've had protests, but it doesn't seem to have had the same global resonance that this had. And I wonder, therefore, if really, you know, as Hibba suggested, COVID is a moment of introspection, but perhaps it's also a moment of action because it has so vividly revealed the deep structural inequalities and the fact that, in fact, it is killing people, you know, killing our fellow countrymen, literally, as we talk. Um, so I'd like to put all of that back to the panel. Um, I know Majid has to leave earlier, and I would really like to hear your thoughts responding to one another uh, before we open it up to the rest of the audience. Don't know if anyone would like to go first. I'll go first. And I, I would say like 100%. And do you know what it's um, not all, some lives in terms of like those people in power, some lives clearly matter more than some other people's lives. So it's like, there's a lot of performative politics that I feel happens a lot of time. Even in the UK, you'll see politicians kneeling. Yet when it comes to actually doing any sort of substance, nothing will be there. They'll say Black Lives Matter. Yet when it's talking about, when, it's, when it comes to the Black lives of refugees who are trying to get into the country because they're looking for sanctuary, clearly those, those Black lives don't matter. But other people, I don't, it's, it's completely hypocritical. And like and other people and I've said, and I reckon definitely it's I guess the recent global events have really transformed what is politically possible. Like the coronavirus has exposed not only the deep inequality within our society, but it's proven what many people have been arguing for a long time that we are only as secure as the most vulnerable amongst us. So I reckon it is really a massive opportunity and 
I guess at the same time, it's I'm a bit skeptical in the sense of personally because it's I can't help but feel that from the UK's perspective, we've got and at the worst possible time, we've got the worst possible leaders in charge, which doesn't fill me with and I guess uh, too much hope. But I reckon the realms of like what can be done have dramatically expanded over everything because I guess for years, like the UK government was telling us it's really hard to house homeless people and the pandemic hit, then we house all the homeless. And then for years we were told that the government couldn't borrow beyond a certain point, then the pandemic hit and that we're borrowing record amounts more than anything else. So it really is at a time where I feel like we're in a pivotal moment. And yes, there are a lot of, I guess, a lot of problems, societal problems, but it's, it's worth kind of pointing out that the problems that we face didn't just come down from the heavens. They are man-made human decisions, mainly by men in suits, I'll add. But good human decisions can really change everything. And I think now is a really, really great time because perspective can really change everything. And as scary, painful and depressing as this year has been so far, it could also be a real opportunity that really enables us to grow and see the change that we desperately need. So rather than just accepting things to be an absolute um, crap, shall we say, and nothing more, it could really prove to be the most important year to really start mobilising and actually demanding that change. Thank you. Thank you so much, Majid. I'm gonna, yeah, start again. I think it's good to forget it going because if you need to leave earlier, <laughs> then we shouldn't lose time. Um, I think I'm going to compliment what you said and really try and understand uh, where does that come from? You know, where is it? Why is that that some lives matter and others don't? And I think we want to jump too fast to action and to try to change this without really confronting the root causes of this. And all of us spoke about colonialism. And I think what we need to confront is the hierarchy that has placed um, some people over others. And this hierarchy has a name. And I think it needs to be named, even if it makes people uncomfortable. And that's white supremacy. It means that that was the norm and uh, the universal norm of superiority that helped justify colonialism because colonialism was not just a neutral uh, economic system because nothing is economic, nothing is neutral or objective. And so this economic system, the, the, the economic, political and cultural system of a colonialism could be enforced and maintained for so many years, so many centuries, because it placed um, uh, white people above everything else. And that, with the civiliz civilizing mission, there um, came as well the dehumanizing of um, people of color, of indigenous people. And so, uh, Hiba, you were speaking of the, uh, you know, hijab ban, and I think it's really uh, exemplifying how, you know, this civilizing mission discourse continues to pervade our uh, societies in, in, in ways that are um, explicit sometimes, but also many times implicit. You know, when we look at the um, politics around language in, in Germany, for example, or also in France, the fact that bilingualism has never really been accepted when they were the wrong languages, when they were the inferior languages. And in that sense, so the fact that um, inequalities and um, systemic racism are based on white supremacy, it needs to be named because otherwise we, we move around a, a conversation where we place everybody on the same level and we um, uh, frame racism as an opinion or as acts of violence. And, and really it's m much more than that. And in this sense, since we're at the university, I'd like to uh, reiterate how important it is to look at the roots of racism also from a, from a, a scientific standpoint, because the university has been a place where all the theories 
placing men above women, placing people with without disabilities above people with disabilities, placing uh, white people above uh, brown and black people and indigenous people is have been tailored in universities. It means that science has played a very important role in maintaining oppression, in maintaining white supremacy, in maintaining patriarchy, and also, of course, in enforcing capitalism. And, you know, capitalism as a system rests on all these differences and, and on this hierarchy. So that's why um, if you want to move forward, I think it's really important to critically question the role of the academia and to uh, make sure that those discourses are uh, unveiled in the academia as well that the academic spaces have a, a certain level of self-criticism in order to accept that so far, it has played a, an important critical role in, in, in maintaining these inequalities. And I think this is happening. The fact that we're having such a panel is already uh, um, very encouraging because it shows that more and more universities are ready to put themselves in questions. And we see that the voices of marginalized people, of oppressed people are getting more ground and that a lot of allies are, as well are ready to see that. So it's not really about dividing, it's not about blaming or shaming, but it's really about seeing um, oppression as a system that has a history, a system that has been enforced through institutions and the very institutions in which we live, in which we work, uh, the institutions that we deem objective and open to everyone. And I include to that as well the media, you know, and not only the media and, uh, you know, the films that we see, but also the way uh, um, the news are, are um, portrayed uh, in the media. If we look at George Floyd, for example, at the beginning of uh, the events, we heard a lot of, I mean, at least in German media, it was referred to as death. You know, we were only speaking about the death of George Floyd, not really naming it as what it was, as murder. And also, there was also something else about it is that uh, in the beginning of the protest, there was a very strong emphasis that was put on the violence that were very peripheral to the to the um, to the protest, just also to reinforce that image of illegitimate uh, claims made by black and brown people, and also the, the the inadequacy of the ways in which they frame their demands. And I think that's also something really important that we need to stop uh, or we need to recognize. The fact that um, nonviolence has been um, heralded as well as a, um, you know, as the ultimate norm for protest. It means that protests need to be nonviolent. They need to be. They need to be silent. They need to be respectful. And that's absolutely right. They should, but it it kind of creates a politics of silencing of people who are marginalized and who have no way to be heard other than to, um, yeah, to 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 through the riots. So for example, Martin Luther King said the riots are the language is the language of the unheard. And it just highlights uh, to what extent we have to really shift the way we think about uh, power in society. Who has the power to be heard without rioting? Who has the right and the power to um, represent themselves in a way that is non-stereotypical, that is uh, respectful, that, you know, highlights dignity. So I think, yeah, I'm going to stop here because um, we have so many things to say and I want to leave the floor to Hiba. Um, so, yeah. Thanks, Amelia. Hiba or Mehmet, would you like to come in? I have a very brief point um, and then Hiba will move over to you if that's okay. Um, I want to come back to this point about education and curriculum. Um, I think it's so important for us to, you know, 
those of us that teach and are around students and certainly at the LSE, we're very mindful of, you know, the type of things that we put on our reading list, the discussions that we have, and we try and facilitate open conversations. But I think it needs to start much sooner than that. I think when you come to university, you're 18 years old, you've been exposed to lots of ideas. And I think having some sort of, you know, education around history and colonialism in a more robust way um, is certainly not something that I've, I, I, I was taught about. So I was learning bits and pieces uh, from, you know, people that I'd come across in my family. So I think one of the things that I, you know, the research that I've been involved in has always spoken to is that actually, you know, if we, if we think about youth, you know, I'm focusing on youth because that's uh, primarily who I, I engage with in my research is they are, you know, they are open to ideas. So if we can start this kind of process of teaching people about history and that empathy you know, what has happened, you know, in the past, who has been responsible for it, what has it caused, you know, that the suffering. And I think if we can do that, you know, from a fairly early age, not, not too early, and facilitate those discussions in the classroom, not just at the university level, I think that will go some way in opening this up. This is a difficult conversation for teachers, for parents. And I feel like, you know, even the, the UK curriculum around it kind of moves back and forth about what we should do. But I would really like to see some some sort of discussion and education around race and multiculturalism, not just, you know, ad hoc um, initiatives here and there, but something more robust to introduce younger people, even before they come to university, about the historical roots of racism, you know, how to kind of understand it, what it's meant for people. And hopefully that in itself will open up conversations. I, I really do feel that opening up these sort of conversations around race, often race is the elephant in the room. People don't want to talk about it. They're uncomfortable. And especially the historical connotations, the roots of it are very difficult for people to talk about. So I wonder if, you know, having something on the curriculum earlier on might be some might be a way to move forward with this. Thanks, Manette. Hiba? Thank you. Um, so I think just to kind of also recap what um, the fellow panelists have mentioned is that education is most of the time and not every, every time the key, um, the key to changing this. And we've seen this, I think we can say surely that we see it now um, when before it could not even be um, a possibility to have such kind of questions here. Um, this is a long process that's coming from young people educating themselves and trying to to make a change. So I think the first thing is, is yes, we need to educate ourselves just when it comes to um, do all lives matter? Uh, because we've seen that sometimes, you know, it's out of pure ignorance that people struggle with the concept that no, not all lives matter. Um, you know, and we've mentioned that in theory, it's it's sure that we we all acknowledge the, the value of everyone's life, but it's just about how in practice um, it, it's not meant, it's not made to be. Um, the second thing um, I, I think that was mentioned is um, everyone's mentioned, you know, do your part, do your bits. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing when it comes it comes to this. Um, it's it's through educating ourselves first and foremost and having the patience to try and educate our, others, which, you know, sometimes it's okay to be too tired and want to kind of take a step back um, if it's too em emotionally or mentally draining, which is completely understandable, but just to take, to try and, and educate others. Um, but I think a very nice point that Amelia mentioned when she talked about protests, um, she talked about, you know, the fact that, and we've seen this in most European countries as well as in France, where, you know, with COVID, the governments were trying to shut down 
um, the protest for different reasons, of course, not just not because they don't want us in the streets. Um, uh, she mentioned how, you know, it, of course, when they can be, they should be peaceful. Uh, but a very interesting thing, um, when I was once in a, in a gathering with other um, human rights defenders, is that we, we need to realize and make sure others realize that peaceful protests are also a privilege. So sometimes a lot of things when it comes to all lives matter is also we don't realize the privileges that we have. And again, this goes back to education and um, education through just our peers and community, but also um, as Amanda um, mentioned uh, in, in the system, uh, re revisiting uh, the syllabus and uh, how things are, are being passed on. And this is going to be long, of course, because, you know, just the people that have the power to change this and um, the leadership themselves refuse sometimes to be educated. But we've seen that changes are possible. So above all, we must continue to try um, yeah, for no reason at all. So. Thank you very much. And I want to thank all the panelists at this point for their thought provoking insights, especially Majid, who unfortunately I know is going to have to leave us shortly. This is the point where I want to bring our audience into the conversation. Um, you are, of course, encouraged to type short questions into the Q&A box, and we're going to try and answer as many of them as possible. Um, if you do type a question, do also please remember to include your name and your affiliation. I'm looking now at the Q&A box, uh, and I can see that we've actually got two clusters of questions. Um, so I'm going to really put both of these clusters to our panel. The first cluster is interested in responding to Amelia's comment on the empathy gap and raises the issue about how we can close the gap, but equally, how can we explain why some people have a bigger empathy gap than others? And those are questions from Devanshi, who is a student from India, and also from Sabrina, who is an LSE postgraduate student from Germany. We also have a cluster of questions interested in thinking about diversity and institutions. Yasmin Najim, who is an LSE alumni and a PhD student from France living in Germany, wants to ask the panel how we can deal with institutions that promote the image of diversity, but don't actually address structural racism. And similarly, Julian Montilla, who is an MA candidate in human rights, at Sciences Po, particularly directing her question to you, Hiba, uh, would like to know what advice you have for navigating anti-racism in a colorblind society. So I'd like to put those all back to the panel uh, for their thoughts. Um, maybe, uh, shall I answer the question on empathy gap uh, before? Yes, that would be great, Amelia, and then we'll go back. Okay, so um, the empathy gap is uh, something I find very interesting in order to explain as well uh, identification. And so we can feel empathy when we identify with a person. And we learn this from a very early age, um, from the time where we can start to see the world and, and read stories. And I saw that with, um, so I have a six-year-old son and uh, when he was smaller, um, and still today, when I read stories to him, I change the names and I try to include, um, you know, different perspectives and also break uh, stereotypes. So when it's, uh, you know, in the book, a little boy, then it will be a girl, like even though, you know, he, he looks or she looks exactly the same. Um, and, and what I notice is that 
As little girls, so people who belong to minority groups learn from a very early age to identify with dominant groups because we have no choice. So little girls learn to identify with boys because in the stories, you know, about adventures and, and, and films that we see, boys occupy a very uh, important place. They are the focal point and then girls have uh, peripheral roles. You know, they, they are accompanying these big roles. So this is what we learn. And that's the same as well with people of color and black people. We learn to identify with white people because this is all we see. You know, when we watch movies, when we read stories and, and, and novels, we learn to identify with them. The other way around, it's not the case. It means that if you have a film with an all black cast, white people do not identify. And it's been, it's been as well uh, shown in studies in the film industry, showing that when white people see an all black cast, they don't go see the movie because they, they have a very low threshold for empathy or for, uh, sorry, identification. And that's also the same. So if we, if we have um, uh, uh, like a series with only female characters, men do not identify with them and so they tend to dismiss the, the the show and so in order to extend that in order to uh, heal the empathy gap we know with that, which i think that is a is a, is a, it's a it's a really big issue for humanity to not feel empathy towards other people and other human beings and also it could be extended again to all living beings you know if we have a climate crisis of this uh, scope it's also because there is no empathy for nature or at least a lost empathy for nature a lost empathy for uh, animals and for you know minerals and and so i think this is also something that needs to be confronted and that needs to be talk talked about in order to change this we need to uh, have roles and we need to create um the possibility for everyone to identify with other groups so if we if our children if the youngest generation learns to identify with um, minor, minority groups, then I think they can also benefit from that. Because I see it as a, as a richness for myself to be able to identify with men, with women, with uh, non-binary people, with, you know, um, uh, also uh, white people, but also black and brown people. And I think, um, you know, people from dominant groups are missing out on this because that's, you know, it's training the brain, it's training our empathy, it's also expanding our world. So in the day where, we, where everybody on this planet will be able to identify and feel empathy with um, a, a brown uh, person in a wheelchair who uh, would also be working class and trans, then we will have moved forward. And this is, I think, uh, something that can happen. The film industry is, uh, plays a tremendous role in this respect and needs to be activated. That's also one reason why CIJ works really closely with the film industry in that regard. Thank you. And Hiba, the question about navigating anti-racism in a colorblind society, I think, was yours. Um, thank you for your question. Um, so that's actually a very good question, because in France, we, we have uh, something very interesting, which is, uh, you know, in theory, um, very good. Um, it's the fact that we remove the word race from our constitution, uh, because we only recognize that there's this one race and it's the human race. Um, but this also just show, show the position that the French society has, which is, you know, uh, we don't see a race as well. Um, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. What's this racism? Um, maybe you're going to have some discrimination, but I don't see colors. I don't see race. Um, and when it comes to um, how, how, to, how to work with, you know, um, institutions and, and how to make this change, a few advice I would have is... Um, Educate yourself again, you know, uh, ask the people who are uh, discriminated against about the struggles that they face um, 
Um, but not, do not just stop there, educate others. As, as Majid, Majid Majid mentioned, um, it's not just the time to be not be racist, it's the time to be anti-racist, not only sympathetic. Um, the second thing is, when you're doing this kind of work, I would say make sure that you also always protect your mental health, um, especially if you're out there, you know, working um, in the student's body, trying to be an activist and um, just keep in mind that as a human being, you will be affected and that's normal and you need to kind of uh, protect yourselves in, in, in order to continue this work. Um, another thing is that it might seem very, you know, um, meaningless, especially in a society where, for instance, in the UK, you know, although they do have a lot of issues with the racism as well, um, you know, you can see them talking about some of those concepts where here in France, we feel like it's the middle age with no one just admitting those concepts. And when a few do, I'm thinking of, for instance, you know, Rukhaya Diallo, they, they, they get so much backlash um, from, from the media and politics. Um, so the other thing is that do not um, think it's meaningless. And I'm going to use, you know, the very known example of the colibri, the bird, um, that even if you just do your part, your part with everyone together uh, will make a, bring, a, a big change. And big changes really are only made when everyone starts at the lowest scale. And, you know, the university, um, uh, you, you mentioned you're from uh, Sciences Po, so starting from university um, is, is a crucial part because that's where young people are, it's a pivotal part of their life where they, they, they're open, they're trying to change themselves and, and they're, they're exposed to many things. So as, an, as a student there, you really have a power to not just change the, the um, institution you're working with, but also the students there. And ultimately those students might one day become those institutions. So never, never, um, you know, never undermine the power that changing one person can have. And also, you know, it's okay if you make mistakes, it's okay if, if you, you also as an individual keep learning and try as much as you can collaborating with them. Uh, and do not undermine the power of, uh, of them. You know, one day you might be in that institution and you might be able to have such panels or events where you talk about that issue, uh, but also you might be able to reach at some point the administration of the university just by doing this. And, you know, they can't, they can't forever ignore you, the work you're doing. Uh, they can try as much as, as they want, but um, if you rely a lot of students, if you collaborate, at some point they will have to listen to you and I'm sure Sciences Po is very good at this as well, so I'm not teaching you anything new, but just make sure that you keep you keep going um, and you'll be the change as well. Thank you. Oh, Thanks. sorry, there was a second question about secularism. Do, apologies. Um, well, I just want to actually get a question to Majid before he has to leave, um, and then we'll come back to secularism. Uh, Majid, before you disappear, uh, we have a question from Josh Burrell, who is the founder of the Hustle Up podcast, and a Sheffield University journalism student. Um, and he particularly would like to hear from you about, now where did it go? Um, the representation of black people in senior positions in politics, coupled with greater education, Manmet had referred to, is this the way forward? In other words, is this how we can go about improving circumstances yeah. or not? And it would great. be great to hear I've from you and then from Manny as well. Definitely. And just quick, quick point, a very quick point on and empathy. And I have got more in common with the white working class person that lives near me that is constantly being told that he needs to hate, he has to hate immigrants and refugees like me. So we've got a lot more in common than 
the middle class people, um, the government, basically the elite. So it's really important. Like there's loads of projects happening in Sheffield to really try and bridge those gaps more, more than anything else. And just trying to, I guess, highlight the fact that we have got more in common. But what I really find uh, interesting is, is from the refugee angle of it, especially when it comes to storytelling, because it's storytelling is really a great, powerful way in terms of making people feel some empathy or show empathy. And at times, of course, it, it's really important to share those struggle stories of um, hardship, of like stories of how they came into the country. But also it's really important to kind of highlight and share stories of relationships, family, friends, food, stuff that people can also really connect with and kind of really empathize and really emphasize empathize with which uh, we, we saw certain campaigns being really really important and, and works in terms of connecting people because people are more likely to have more in common with that than taking a treacherous journey and across and um, across where mediterranean wherever it is but even like even if you were to literally google refugees a lot of the fraud 99 of the photos you see is people on dinghy boats and trying to cross and it kind of really just dehumanizes them rather than I, there's a whole different campaign in terms of the kind of pictures that um, copy editors use when they're talking about refugees but in terms of like representation to answer the gentleman's question from um, wonderful Sheffield um or is it like it's I definitely would say like just having black and brown faces in high places is not like it, it's not it's not it doesn't do as much justice in as if it was somebody who really had the best interest and was really and uh, had justice at the heart of what they were. Uh, were of course, it helps. Like it's the reality is the people that we choose to lead us, without being local government or national government, they do not reflect the people that they are, they are there to represent. So, if we look at, for example, the government cabinet in the UK, majority of them come from a similar class background. Majority of millionaires. So, how they really? meant to truly understand the devastating impacts of austerity or what child poverty means. And of course, like representation in terms of getting more women, more people from the LGBT community, more black people, it, it really, really helps. But it's not the answer to solving our injustices that we face. And on that note, thank you very much, Jennifer, and to Manmi, Amelia, Jennifer, and I mean, and Hiba. And to everyone that's participated, I'm really sorry I have to shoot off, but it's been a real pleasure and thank you very much. Yeah, pleasure's been our Majid. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Um, Bye-bye, Majid. Uh, I have uh, some, I, I, there's something I'd like to react on when it comes to diversity. Um, because that's true, as Majid said, um, it's often seen as the solution, you know, the old catch, the catch-all solution for um, systemic racism and sexism. We just need to have diversity in institutions. What we also need to do is to question, um, you know, which institutions cannot be really reformed. For example, if we look at the police, um, having more diversity in the police might help uh, in the short to long term to um, lower implicit biases a little bit. But I still believe that uh, the police in and of itself is built as well on assumptions and on stereotypes that are helping as well, um, you know, that are at least the basis of law enforcement practice. So having more black and, um, and brown people in the police is not necessarily helping. If you look at the US, for example, there is a, a very high uh, a quota of black people in the police and police brutality and, and racism is still happening. We need to question the, the, 
the history and the, the, the rationale behind institutions. And if you look at the police, for example, um, the police was there um, at the beginning to enforce or at least to manage social inequalities. It was here to um, manage the gap, between, the gap between poor and rich people and to make sure that um, the, uh, the, the wealth and uh, the capital and uh, the assets of rich people would be protected by the state. And this, this is really what happened. For example, in, the, in colonial times, the police was there to protect um, you know, the colonial powers as well by uh, oppressing um, colonized people. During slavery, the police was there to catch runaway slaves and to torture them as well. During um, the Third Reich, the police was there to make sure that all Jewish people were hunted down and also Roma and Sinti people and all other people who were, um, pers uh, who were uh, um, you know, um, targeted by the system were also catched. So we have to really look at the police as an institution which is, which is enforcing power, which is oppression as well. So um, when we are so talking about defunding the police, it's really about trying to find an alternative system which doesn't rest on um, you know, the assumption that certain groups need to be protected while others um, uh, should, be, um, yeah, should be policed and oppressed and, 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 uh, and uh, discriminated against. And so I think it links nicely with um, the quote by James Baldwin that Majid um, uh, cited earlier. And so diversity, yes, but it's not, uh, it's not a solution for every issues when it comes to discrimination. We also have to question what the institution stands for. That would be the same for, you know, having more and more women in, uh, you know, Trump's party, for example, it wouldn't really help in the long term. So, um, yeah, just very briefly, yeah, this comment. Jennifer, can I come in briefly just Please. to... Thank you, Jennifer. We, our questioner from Sheffield really wanted to hear a bit more about your thoughts yeah. on education. So that would be great. Thank you. Yeah, so that's what I was going to uh, think about. So it's interesting, Majid's um, comments about arts and that element as well, because, you know, you find over and over again that education needs to be formal education in the sense of what you do in the classroom, but there needs to be informal education too. Lots of people, you know, racism is often passed on to generations and it's often about misinformation it's also, it's also about fear fear of the unknown and I think that one thing that I found over and over again in my research is that the more positive diverse contact experiences you can have from a young age with different people really does impact your sense of belonging going forward and that's certainly been my case and when I did my doctoral thesis I found that with other young people from a similar background so I think education is key, but I think education needs to be informal in the sense it needs to be about culture. It does need to be about music, food, those histories, family life. And that's where commonality actually really comes from. Um, and I found that in, in my own life and also in, in my studies as well, that that in itself will you know, help to fill that empathy gap, I think, which is sometimes an information gap where there is this separation between families and cultures. And actually, we've got so much more in common that we don't realise and until you have those experiences that are often informal and are facilitated by lots of, you know, um, grassroots organisations, and there's clearly not enough of that going on, that's where the real meaningful bonds and communication happen. And I know it's not easy to implement, and I know it will take a massive push, and certainly in the last 10 to 15 years, I've seen much more of it happening. But I do think that in addition to formal education, you know, curriculum changes that we're trying to make, but they need to be filtered down, I think, to at least, you know, 
earlier in the secondary school system in the UK in particular, there has to be this sort of informal education as well about different, you know, different families, cultures, religions. And that's where that commonality comes from. And I found that over and over again. And that's how I understand the empathy gap. It's like in my work, that's how I've seen it. Lots of people don't have empathy because they don't understand you know, others, they don't understand. There's this constant othering of groups, religions, and it happens over and over again. And, you know, it does sound cliche to say that we've got more in common than, than you know, what divides us, but it's actually true. And when people are exposed to that, it does take time, but it does, it does take, you know, it does take a position in their mindset. So that, that's how I would respond to that question. Thanks, Manny. On the empathy point, which is clearly something that's really sparked a lot of reflection from the part of our audience, uh, we have another question from Sabrina, um, who is an LSE postgraduate student, and it's really for all of the panel. Um, she says, talking about individual or structural racism with whites, I used to end up pardon me, comforting the white person. How do I constructively engage in discussions about race and gender without ending up carrying the emotional load of the discourse? I think that's a really important question. Um, and I'd like, again, to invite all of you really to share your thoughts on that. I think it's very hard, if I'm honest. I think it'd be very easy to say you do ABC, but those of us that have these experiences and we carry the experiences of our family, the migration that they've encountered, the, the injustices that they've encountered are all kind of stamped on us in different ways. And it is very hard to have those conversations. And I've had those difficult conversations and been you know, and, and they have got more confrontational. I think it's very hard. I think my honest opinion is that there's only so much you can do with some conversations. And I think the best thing, it's very difficult for us to separate our emotional attachment and our emotional journey with these issues when we have these conversations. But I think something that's happened to, that I have slowly got to the point of understanding is that no one will ever understand these issues from our, our lens in a sense that for, other, for, for many other people, it's harder for people to kind of wrap their heads around everything that we're telling them. And I think that has given me, that has kind of maybe narrowed my empathy gap in a sense of understanding that, you know, not everybody understands this journey that we're all on. So I think my advice to you would be to kind of maybe just stick to, a, stick to you know, the key points that you want to get forward and try and, you know, just understand that you don't always need everybody to understand exactly all aspects of your journey, but just have that point, make those points that you really want to get across to people. But I do appreciate that these are very difficult, difficult discussions to have with certain people. Thanks, Manmit. Hiba and Amelia, would you like to come in on this? Um, Hiba, did you want to go or shall I? It's okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, yes, it is uh, difficult. It is emotional, emotionally draining. And here at that stage, I think I'd like to mention the term gaslighting, which uh, I think most of us know, but just for those who don't, gaslighting is um, a phenomenon in uh, psychological abuse that makes the other person doubt their own reality. And gaslighting is a very, like the empathy gap, are two very important elements of oppression. It means that uh, oppressed people are constantly made to doubt their own reality because the system in which we live confirms the reality of the person that is confronting them. So the main response will be, oh, no, this wasn't meant this way. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't racism. I'm sure it wasn't sexism. I'm sure it wasn't oppression or whatever. And so in that sense, um, it always takes a, a very strong emotional toll on people to have to prove that their reality is worth 
discussing and that their point of view is valid. And so once I understood this, uh, I decided to disengage from, you know, people who would uh, gaslight me and to just also, I think it's, you know, what you said, Hiba, about kind of protecting my own mental health by just also knowing when it's worth it. Um, and in my private life, I only surround myself by people who are able to see that. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's only, you know, um, black people, POC people and uh, white women or queer people, not at all. But it means that it's people who are ready to question their own um, uh, perspective and to decenter their ego from the conversation. And I think that's, um, that's really what needs to, uh, to be understood by people from dominant groups, that it's really not about them. Even if the system in which we live have um, uh, made them believe that they are the center of the world. And that's something that they can also greatly benefit from, you know, because nobody can bear that last, you know, of that burden of being the center of the world. So if we all understand that, then we can uh, cultivate our empathy and we can also um, move beyond a, an understanding of the world that is very reductive, that is very limited and that is very um, poor in the end. Um, yeah, so it's it's all about trying to understand, is it worth it? Do I want to engage with this? Are there better ways for me to um, get my point across? And do I feel seen? And, and to finish, I think there's one aspect that a lot of people from oppressed group de develop is the, the need to be seen by the dominant group. It's the need to be validated, the need to be accepted, the need to, yeah, to, to, to be real basically. And, and, and uh, if we can let go of this, then conversations become much less draining because we know and understand that our worth is not de defined by whether we're seen, or whether we're understood and whether our point is deemed valid by the other person seeing us. Ipa? Sorry, thank you. Um, no, I think just to join, you know, to not repeat what's been already mentioned, I, I think um, it, it's important for us to understand that it, it is going to be very hard and sometimes frustrating because you know, you have to pick your fights and you also have to pick who you you will um, take the time to go through this. Um, but it's frustrating because we kind of always want to, you know, um, pass the message to everyone and really make sure that, you know, we want to change everything and everyone. But it's very hard and frustrating to realize that, no, actually, we can't. And I think this is the very first thing to remember is that you won't be able to change everything. You can try, but make sure you know you know when to move on to something else. And maybe that person later, you know, will be in a stage where they'll be able to 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 hear you uh, and 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 not just to and to actually listen to you. Um, but maybe that time has not come yet. And the second thing is that our activism must really be grounded in education um, for those engaged in this area of work. And it's about teaching them. It's not about them or their feelings. So it's about making them understand that they should use those emotions to change something. Um, so although it's hard, we need to really, really use education as a ground and, and make sure that, you know, it's not personal. It's not because sometimes, you know, um, they're going to use their own, you know, but I have I have this black friend. I have this Arab friend of this happened to my grandma or, you know, um, as Manet mentioned, sometimes it's also generational um, that this kind of ignorance are shared and passed on. Um, so it, you need to, that's the, the first thing, it would be making them understand that it's about education and it's not about um, emo personal emotions. And if they want to feel, it's great, but they you should use that as a fool to change things. Thanks, Heather. 
I'm conscious of also wanting to include our audience who are posting questions on Facebook. Um, we have a really interesting question from Noor Sula, who is a student at CCU researching othering. And Noor asks all of you, what do you think is the difference between othering, racism, and stereotypes? Perhaps Amelia or Amendment would like to begin that. I know it is in part perhaps a little more of an yeah, academic like question. My fingers, I want to answer that question. Uh, so there's, uh, they're all the same um, uh, sides of a square, let's say. And the square is oppression. So it means that stereotypes help enforcing the hierarchy in which we are all embedded. It helps to um, enforce superiority and inferiority on all different grounds. You know, I talked about disability, about gender, about sexual orientation, about um, race. Um, so um, stereotypes are there for that. And so they need to be constantly reiterated and repeated and enforced and like through picture, through images. So it's something that is quite powerful. Um, then othering is the same because in order to create difference, in order to create a hierarchy, you have to uh, have a, a universal neutral objective norm that is the standard against which uh, humanity will be defined. And it, it is, you know, and this norm is, as I said earlier, white supremacy, but it's also, um, you know, a masculine norm. It's also a heterosexual norm. And it's also, you know, an able-bodied norm that is not disabled, for example. Um, and so othering, you need to create the others from this norm and you need to cast them as inferior. So othering is not just saying you're other. It's about saying you're other and you're inferior. And racism is basically what it is. You know, racism is a system that enforces those differences, that enforces this hierarchy, and that gives the right to the state, institutions, and individuals to oppress and to uh, discriminate against the people who have been cast as inferior and as others. Manmet, do you want to come in as well on this point? That's a perfect answer. I don't have anything else to add to that. Thank you, Amelia. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Um, I have a question as well from Christina, who is an LSE student from Portugal. And this one is to you, Hiba. Um, Christina writes that she understands that France is a secular state and prohibits religious symbols, not just Islam. Uh, so do you think it can still be considered Islamophobic? Thank you, Christina, for your question. Um, just maybe kind of like a background historical checking for maybe those that are not very familiar with French history and politics is that um, France has had in 1905 a law that separated the church, so the religions from the state. Um, so that's secularism. And France has worked this way. So with a, a not a political, but a not religious state for over a century. Um, and, and, and has been indeed, um, you know, um, secular. Um, but then very recently, um, but time flies already been 16 years, um, France has worked this way for over a century. And then in 2004 introduced a law that banned, uh, you know, every uh, uh, religious symbols from uh, the public sphere, meaning, you know, public schools and also public servants uh, uh, positions. So that means that, yes, even um, Sikh, Jews, Muslims were not allowed to, to wear any of their religious symbols if they were a public servant. Um, however, when you look now at the drafts that were designed uh, uh, back then, the, 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 the law, you can see that it was designed in a, in a very, very smart uh, and you know oppressive way so it could not be made unconstitutional because obviously the response was for everyone to to claim for the rights of freedom thinking and religion uh, 
But we see that the aftermath mostly affected the Sikh and the Muslim women. And before that law passed, actually the entire jurisprudence uh, uh, and the law cases were concerning them. There was, you know, um, the um, schools that were trying to ban such students and they would take it up to the courts. However, what's happened and what really makes it Islamophobic is not just the law in itself in theory, um, it's the actual, the, the application of that law and how it grew to become a new social norm. Um, when you look at the political, governmental and media discourse, discourse it's actually proved that it's an obsession um, with the recent interpretation of secularism, because, you know, as I mentioned, in 1905, it was completely different. They brought a new principle of neutrality. And that one, you can see that in reality, it is affecting visible Muslim women wearing a headscarf. Um, and you see that as well in society itself. So a couple of years ago, a woman went to the voice um, and she sang and she had the four judges turning, uh, but then she actually went ahead with, with the, um, in the program and she was, you know, she made it far away, far, um, but when it was aired on TV, uh, the, 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 the program, the channel had to remove her completely from um, the voice because um, some people were completely disgusted by the fact that she was wearing a headscarf and they were calling upon secularism they clearly did not understand what it was but that's just what they taught they were they learned and what they were taught and what they were using as a weapon they were like how dare she be here on tv she should you know tv is public it should just be private so just show you how although it came from a law it actually made society islamophobic and it, this happened later as well I, I wish it was the only example but we had another student Marianne Pushtu who was uh, you know, um, the president of her student union. And she was making a statement on TV being interviewed about um, a new bill that the government wanted to introduce affecting students' rights. But no one listened to what she had to say. And for two weeks, the entire government stopped and she was harassed by politicians just you know, um, emphasizing how she should be neutral um, and how even the students' union should not have um, uh, people um, not secular and this came on and on until recently I mean every time someone shows up on TV we just wait for the fallout or just if someone is is you know outspoken um, which is kind of you know the, the hypocrisy of asking you to um, integrate uh, but also preventing you to do so and, and the discourses from the leadership of the country completely undermine Muslim women's choice and agency uh, you know, we use uh, concepts as uh, um, human rights, freedom, feminism, just to undermine the choice of, of, of wearing such clothing. And that just proves that secularism is used as an Islamophobic tool in France. Um, and that, ma that makes that a kind of racism systemic. Um, and, you know, it's, it's used as, in a society as a whole, as I mentioned, you know, in private businesses where the law does not touch it because everyone has been fed that narrative. Now, even if you go into private businesses and companies, they're going to use secularism as a way to exclude you from employment. So this, Manmeet um, mentioned as well, you know, education and culture are key. And we see the results now, how the French erased religions from society, um, uh, you know, from schools, people were had to fill one mold and look the same according to some standards that they set for others and now we see the results where there's a lack of empathy a huge intolerance and different forms of racism um 
So just to be clear, the state is secular, but I as an individual am not, and I should not be asked to be. Thanks, Hiba. I want to go back to the point about culture because we have a great question from Hamza Barwawi, who is a visitor to the LSE from KSA. Um, and he has a question for all of the panelists. He asks, how representation and the promotion of diversity in the arts, and he's thinking of music, TV and movies and so on, can help counter racism by normalizing such representation and diversity, but also how dangerous virtue signaling and performative activism is in the push against racism. Um, so there's a question um, for all of you to think of and to share your thoughts with us as well. Don't know who would like to go first. Oh, maybe. Thanks, Amelia. Sorry, I thought that I would uh, give the floor to Manmit, but uh, okay, I can, okay. Um, so first of all, maybe just a very quick uh, follow-up to what Hiba said. Um, you know, the ban of religious symbol is a placeholder for the ban of the headscarf. And that is something that has been recognized as well in the many cases brought forward in individual countries and also at the European Court of Human Rights, really showing that we're in the face of indirect discrimination towards uh, Muslim women wearing the headscarf. So it means that if it wasn't formulated differently, if it wasn't for uh, women, Muslim women wearing the headscarf, these laws would not exist in Europe today. So very briefly. And then uh, concerning the diversity as a placeholder for, or at least being really careful that it doesn't become performative. And also in the arts, I think it was a really long question, very interesting, but I'm, I may be missing some of the points. So uh, please excuse me if I do. Um, so of course, and that's always the question with really trying to look at uh, measures that are implemented in order to dismantle systems. Because systems, our systems are so old and so powerful, um, they tend to survive all those reforms. So I'm just going to give you an example maybe that we can also uh, um, uh, apply to diversity in the arts. You know, let's say that body positivity, you know, the movement of body, body positivity, trying to make women accept their bodies as they are and to infuse like a very positive message about, um, you know, all body shapes, etc. It has become really co-opted by neoliberal rhetorics and politics, putting the responsibility on individuals um, in dealing with um, the systems of oppression that are at the origin of women, mostly women, and uh, gender non-conforming people not accepting their bodies and people with disabilities not accepting their bodies. So now instead of confronting those very systems which are uh, patriarchy and uh, capitalism and also to some extent racism instead of really confronting those systems and the root causes for the lack of acceptance of our own bodies instead of doing this we put the responsibility on individuals to accept their bodies no matter what so it becomes even um you know not, not even like a socially unaccepted sometimes in some circles to complain about your own body and say, oh, I want to lose weight or um, to say that you're not happy with your own body because the body positivity rhetoric has become so powerful that it becomes the responsibility on, of individuals alone to deal with those systems. And that's a bit the same with diversity in the arts um, or diversity in any institution for that matter. So if it becomes solely like a performative act of saying we need to have um, 
uh, we need to have a, a more diversity it can very very quickly become an excuse or at least um, um, divert the the attention from the systemic issues at hand namely that arts is um, highly elitist that arts has been excluding working class people and uh, uh, women and um, uh, you know black and POC people for a very long time that it is uh, that it it is uh, entirely also embedded in a capitalist system, um, and so that's why diversity alone, and we always come back to it, is not enough. So I'm going to stop here. I feel like I haven't fully answered the question. I, I can't put a hold on it because there are so many other questions. But um, I hope that at least it provided some um, insights for um, conversation. Thanks so much. Well, we've had an amazingly rich list of questions coming up, and I'm sorry we can't do justice to all of them. Um, I'd like to give Manmed in particular a chance to answer the one about the arts, because I know you've done a lot of work on that. And then just kind of to segue into our concluding thoughts, I also would like to quickly highlight a couple of questions. And then after Manmed has commented, really open again to all of you to think about them. Um, the other questions that have been raised, which I think are good ways to bring us to a conclusion, um, Katerina Radzius, who is an LSE alumni in development studies, has brought up, of course, this mantra of never again, which we've said on so many occasions. And she asked the question, how can we make sure we don't keep repeating the same mistakes? Carolyn, who is another LSE alumni, would like to hear specifically about what academics can do to help dismantle racism. And Lauren would like to know your advice on what people who aren't from minority backgrounds can do to help propel the movement forward. Um, so Manny, first to you, and then really generally to all of you on those questions and your final comments. Thank you, Jennifer. Just to touch upon the arts question, which I think is a is a very good question. I think it's beyond the scope of the uh, to answer it fully with the time that we've got left. But I think arts are so important, and I think you know if you look at the way that different families have been included on, you know, br traditional British soap operas, music, and also fusion, like, you know, in the UK, for example, minority groups have kind of, and the majority have kind of created cultural content. They've, there's, a, there's, there's new waves of, you know, Afrobeats, Bangra that have, have been born in the British uh, context. So it's not always that um, the cultures are always separate. And I think when you can create that cultural content that, that speaks to both both groups, but also draws on the experience of minority groups of growing up in the UK, for example. I think it's very powerful. So, for example, being from a Sikh background, I'm very familiar with Bangra music and the Bangra music we get here in the UK is specifically called UK Bangra because it speaks to the experience of young Sikhs growing up in the UK. And it's actually been very commercially successful. So I think those kind of um, collaborations can be very powerful. And again, I think it comes back to that same point of creating that commonality that we can actually create something. And I think, I think arts are very important. And I think, you know, having, having a diverse characters on TV and giving that insight into their families, I think it's very important. The question is when this becomes, you know, tokenistic is, 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 a, is a very important question. It's very hard to ascertain all the time. But one thing that I always think about is the diversity within diversity, you know, are, is the arts, you know, kind of going back to the same formulations of different groups? Or are we seeing kind of different understandings of what it's, what it's like to be a young Muslim female, a young Sikh man? So do, 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 are we able to explore that diversity within diversity is always, for me, quite a good benchmark of how representative 
these uh, these um, attempts at arts to be more inclusive are. And just just to talk about the point about academia and you know being an academic and, and racism and our responsibility to you know give all of that a voice. I think it's a very good question. It's one that I get asked a lot. Um, I do feel a sense of responsibility to um, these these issues that for me are not just my work, but are you know representative of the life that I lead um, as as a young as a younger British Indian woman, but also what I know of other communities that I work with. So I do feel a very strong sense of responsibility. But I think what's really important is having the academic freedom to kind of draw draw in that and have these kind of discussions like we are tonight with, you know, colleagues and other panellists and be able to bring my own experiences and talk about that and not just about, um, you know, purely what I teach or lecture on. So I think that's really important. And I think having that support from your students and the institution that you work for is really important also. But it's not something that I think I could do alone um, if I'm completely honest, it's very difficult from, for, you know, to do this alone. But I think working in the right environment and um, making sure that, you know, you, you do get a chance to draw on your own personal experiences is really important and certainly makes my worth really worthwhile as I'm able to draw on all of that. Great question. Thanks, everyone. I know that Amelia has to leave shortly. Um, so I would like to thank her very much for joining us. Um, I would finally, before we end, like to bring Hiba back in. Um, Hiba? Well, just before, thank you very much, everyone, since I have to leave. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it has been a pleasure for me to participate in this panel. And, uh, yes, I wish you a nice end of this conversation for the last few minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amelia. Thanks, Amelia. It's been fantastic. Hiba? Thank you. Um, yeah, so um, I'm just going to um, ask if you could uh, maybe reiterate just a second question. Uh, I got the first one, um, but I didn't get the first, the, the second one. The questions that we had, we had one about never again, and how can we actually really keep to that promise this time? Uh, question from Carolyn about the role of academics. And then a final um, question from Lauren what can you recommend for somebody who isn't from a minority background? What can they do to help propel the movement forward? Perfect, thank you. Thank you for your patience as well. Um, so I think the never again question is, is very, very important because sometimes we also feel like that just become a phrase that we all say um, and that we don't necessarily implement. And, and we've seen this, you know, um, happening, whether it's after the Shoah or the Rwandan genocide or even more recently, the Srebrenica genocide in Bosnia. Um, and we see that right now it's, it's, it's happening all over again. So never again um, is, 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 is now uh, with the Uyghur um, genocide, as, as mentioned in, in China previously. Um, I think one of the best way, and this might come as very repetitive from what's been said before, is a best way to never forget history and actually to fight genocide, which is, you know, the complete erasure of a culture, of an identity, of a, a race, religion, ethnic, ethnicity, is education. It's to educate ourselves, you know, um, to, to do I know uh, well enough about this topic um, do do I have I called those people and met them, but also educate others because education is the powerful tool to ensure that 
what was meant to be erased, what people try to erase is actually never forgotten. Um, so a, a simple example is that, you know, I was always aware of the Srebrenica genocide, uh, but it was only when I went and visited and I saw all the white thumb, um, thumbs, graves, uh, and when we met survivors that were my age, some younger, some just a bit older, when we could see, still see their artifacts, I realized how recent it was when we saw, you know, um, the UN photos, which were not in black and white, but in colors, um, that we realized that this literally could have been us here in Europe as well. Um, and this is all part of education of, you know, uh, speaking out and ensuring it is never forgotten. Um, so it's also, you know, organize yourself, um, you know, as individuals, organizations, institutions, to ensure that you do commemorate, but not just for the sake of, the anniversary of such disasters, but also to talk how you can tackle now those issues. Um, and now it's, you know, um, I think never again, this other part when you educate yourself is that hopefully you do reach places where you're in the position to make the decisions to stop such things. Um, and even if you do not reach that power, we all as individuals have, uh, have powers. Uh, you know, there's campaigns happening, for instance, right now with the Uyghur, there's petitions, there's, um, you know, gatherings, and we all have, you know, boycotts, different ways to um, organize ourselves and to act. And this all together ensure that never again is not just a statement, but a reality. And then for the academics, I think it was uh, already addressed. Maybe the only thing I would have to, to add uh, is um, to make it dumber. Um, a lot of time we're all talking um, to one another and just amongst ourselves. And it's very easy to, you know, uh, take for granted certain concepts um, and, and just, you know, go, 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 go far in, in our debates. Um, so that ha that makes that when you you kind of meet the rest of the world, uh, you're you're very isolated, but also they don't speak your language. So there can be this huge gap between what you actually research and found, which can be very very important and really beneficial. Um, but you can't deliver it because you're not speaking the same language as people. I'm not saying most people are stupid. I'm just saying that you actually need to make it um, more educational. And as mentioned before, education is not just formal. Informal education is really the way to make sure that you reach most people uh, and that you have an effective change in them. Thanks, Hiba. Unfortunately, at this point, I'm going to have to draw the conversation to an end. The fact that we haven't got through all of the questions is testimony to how interesting and important a conversation it has been. Um, it's been a fabulous pleasure for me and I think from our audience. And I'd like to thank once again the panel for joining us and obviously all of you in the audience as well with engaging so fully in the conversation. So many thanks everyone.